Now recording. <laughs> we don't want it. We didn't want to uh, bog down the episode with China discourse, but no, we were happy. No, I, don't, I don't really want to do that. I don't want to bog down the episode with any kind of discourse unless discourse is a labor course. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I was say, that would indicate that what we're saying isn't the correct line. <laughs> well, and this I feel like this week is going to be, you know, the th- one of the most discourse heavy weeks of the year since it's, you know, tomorrow's election day or whatever. So yeah. it's going to be bombarded with annoying takes. Yeah, you know uh, what they always yeah. say when the midterms are coming up. You get that new episode of Great British Baking Show, and they're like, hello, it's Discourse Week. <laughs> <laughs> the judges would like you to bake 12 very discursive scones. <laughs> oh, man. Well, and uh, well, the fact that it's all happening at the same time that like Elon Musk is making Twitter an even shittier place to be. Like- yeah, basically unusable and like going back and forth on whether or not he's like announcing he's going to ban people for certain things like impersonating celebrities. But then he's also announced previously that he's not going to permanently ban anyone. That's like part of yeah. the new thing. So it's like. I guess exactly what you would expect from his dumb ass. What? And then what? It was yesterday that like an actual comedian got banned for impersonating Elon Musk. Oh, there have been a yeah, like Kathy yeah. Griffin got permanently banned. Yeah, from, the, for Jeff that. Jacques got permanently banned, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. I think Daniel Radcliffe got suspended for impersonating. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know what's going to happen to all those accounts like uh, Jesus to Super Jew or oh, whatever, yeah. because he's had to get a new account like a bajillion times. And like, how do permabans affect people who just keep making new accounts? None of this shit makes any sense. Twitter's already a bad app. Watching it get worse is interesting, I guess. <laughs> I, am yeah. a, I don't. My my entire engagement with Twitter is through things that are posted in Discord, so I am actually pretty safe in that regard. And well, so, well, honestly, let them fight. Yeah, I like your attitude. We should all try to engage with Twitter a little bit less and engage with things that are meaningful a little bit more. And on that note... Your favorite labor <laughs> podcast that is not about the fall of Twitter. My name is John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we are an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much for your contributions on Patreon. If you're not in the Discord, get in there. It's completely free. If you are a patron and you don't have stickers yet, just message us on Patreon.com, and we will get them to you. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or post about it from your Twitter account impersonating Elon Musk. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, unfortunately, we have to start with some sad news this week. That's right. Uh, we've got a follow-up on the Home Depot union election. Uh, we'd been talking over the last few weeks about this effort that sprung up at a Home Depot in Philadelphia with the goal of starting an independent union, Home Depot Workers United. Uh, though This is was, of course, the first union election at a Home Depot store in quite a long time because Home Depot is a incredibly anti-union company. 
And unfortunately, the election did not go the union's way. Uh, it actually uh, was pretty hard the other way. This Saturday, we got the votes because people voted all through last week, and the count was held this weekend. And the votes came up uh, 165 votes against the union, 51 votes for the union, and that's on 83% turnout. So unfortunately, clearly the uh, union busting campaign by Home Depot, as well as just their like whole anti-union culture that's kind of built into how everything is run there. Like the fact, you know, they make every employee go through, you know, anti-union training. There's constant propaganda against them and, and oversight from management. So clearly it was always going to be an uphill battle. And, you know, we, we, we've seen why, cause you know, we've talked in the past on, on the show about the, the reports of union busting that they talked about how the, you know, the company flooded the store with managers and consultants were following organizers around all day, monitoring every single one of their, uh, mm-hmm. their conversations. I mean, I know, I think at one point, like workers were talking about like how shitty, like the, the conditions got during the union busting campaign that it was like so bad. It was like breaking up friendships, like at the, on the floor. And so that's, I think incredibly common. I mean, we've heard from other places or other people like at Starbucks where that's been the case. I experienced that during my union drive. I mean, the whole point of a union busting campaign is to divide workers. And if that means that you're going to ruin people's friendships, then they don't give a damn. They don't care about any people except for the, you know, bosses. So, you know, I mean, the the whole point of a union busting campaign is to say, fuck the workers. Yeah, well, and Home Depot has been at this for a really long time and, and trying really hard to keep unions out. I mean, they the only unionized workers for Home Depot is a small unit of 60 drivers in San Diego who are with the Teamsters. Uh, but this doesn't seem to have, uh, you know, put out lead organizer Vince Quiles' uh, spirit for this kind of activity at all, who, who uh, said that their inexperience played a role in the loss. But he also told local news station WHYY, quote, I see it like this. They're very beatable. Had we better prepared for that propaganda, for that intimidation, this would have gone differently. He also cited the fact that their upstart union effort had no resources to spend to combat the union-busting campaign, but also said this is just the first stage in a longer fight, which is really good to hear because, I mean, there have been multiple cases where we've seen unions not succeed in the first round, and it's very easy as an observer to just kind of throw your hands in the air and be like, well, we give up on this one. But when you're one of the workers in the store or at the company or whatever, um, you know, it, it, it has a little bit more of a, of a, a priority status for you to keep at this kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I also like, I think that, you know, it's, it's tough to have this attitude, but I think it's the right way to look at it, which, because like, he's neither taking the, you know, complete despair route of like, oh, our, our, our efforts been crushed forever. Like we really tried our all and everything, you know, fell apart and, and now we're never going to have a union here. It's still very optimistic, but also having that insight, that willingness to do self-criticism, to be like, look, Mm -hmm. we lost and that sucks. And it's mostly because of, of Home Depot's union busting campaign. And and they are going to, you know, file ULPs and they already have, but also being willing to look at, okay, like what could we have done better, especially if we'd had more resources. And so like that willingness to try and learn from those losses is one of those things that is, is a a mark of a, a good organizer. And so like, I think it's really good to see that level of thought, like in the immediate aftermath, which is probably the hardest period to have that sort of a mm-hmm. perspective. 
Yeah, well, I, I definitely see that in when, you know, there's other campaigns that have been more long fought and there's been many losses. There ends up being more victories because you have all of that knowledge on the specific ways that the company is going to union bust. Whereas these workers are going in and saying, hey, we want a union. We're going to fight for a union and not having a lot of uh, knowledge or ammunition on how to inoculate the workers against those anti-union tactics. I mean, when we were doing our union drive, we spent seven or eight months specifically doing inoculations against union busting, and uh, and that was for a campaign that was a little bit longer than you know the first uh, move in in this particular drive. Yeah, well, and it's interesting because even despite the loss, like we're still seeing some inoculation-like effects, some like heightened, you know, class consciousness among the workers. Where uh, Vince Quiles is saying his coworkers, even you know, despite losing, feel more empowered to challenge management and stand up for their rights on things in the workplace. He said, "quote It doesn't stop here. This is a much larger war that we're now entering into. And while we may have lost the first battle, there will be many more to come. They woke up a beast, and I think that's a really good way." to look at it because also you know i think home depot is gonna feel pretty comfortable uh kind of resting on their laurels after this they're really gonna feel like they've won and they're gonna feel like they can clamp back down on these workers rights and if the workers have already been through one union campaign they're gonna feel pretty confident saying like hey i know for a fact now thanks to going through that that you're not allowed to do that and so there might be a lot more opportunities in the future thanks to that you know heightened awareness well, and who knows? There could actually still be some victories that come out of this as, mm. you know, Home Depot will want to try to find other ways to subvert the union movement by maybe providing benefits, which would then be retroactively, you know, victories won by this union movement. And so we still have yet to, to see those possible victories. But to move on to our next story, we're going to uh, follow up on the Chipotle that was closed in Augusta, Maine, where the NLRB issued a complaint specifically citing that Chipotle did illegally close their store and force them to reopen the store, rehire the fired workers, pay them back pay, and force the company to recognize the union, which uh, is honestly a pretty good complaint list and honestly covers a lot of the things that we often say are shortcomings. But also we have to take into consideration that this was basically immediately pushed back on by Chipotle and is going to be brought to a court. And we know how the courts feel about labor. They don't care. They will side with with the uh, with capitalists and, and the business. And uh, we'll honestly very likely say that the company, the company's claim of uh, business reasons for closing the store yeah. are legitimate. But I mean, there is still the chance that this NLRB uh, ruling or complaint against Chipotle will hold up. But again, that could take so long. I mean, this whole process has been uh, many months long, and then the whole court hearing additionally will be many, many more months, leaving a lot of these workers with nothing in the meantime. Yeah, like, I I don't want us to come across as, you know, like, overly sour on things like the NLRB, because it's like, look, this is, this is good. This is a, it's a good complaint from the NLRB, like, uh, from the legal angle of things, this is probably the best you could get out of the NLRB. Like, this is, mm -hmm. I think, about as the most they can do within the purview of the NLRA. So we're very glad to see the NLRB, you know, pushing out a, a pro worker ruling like this. It's just, unfortunately with this sort of story, you always have to look at like, 
what are the limitations of this sort of approach? And unfortunately, this is such a good complaint from the NLRB that it can't help but expose those limitations because, you know, the NLRB is very clear in this complaint. They're like, look, you illegally closed the store specifically because the workers were unionizing. Mm -hmm. And so we want you to reopen the store, hire everybody else, and recognize the union, which, sure. I mean, short of, like, handing the store over to the workers to run themselves, which, of course, would be our recommendation, but we, you know, no under no delusion the government's going to say to do that. That's about as good a complaint as you could get. But as you were saying, Lena, like, because of how the the court system and the whole process works, even if we get that best case scenario, which is pretty unlikely, especially the bargaining order portion of it, uh, like it's probably going to be multiple years before this whole case is ruled on, and the workers don't really have the luxury to just sit around and wait for the the whole thing to be processed. They're going to have to go find other work in the meantime, and that's just mm-hmm. all to say not to be like, oh, ignore the NLRB or anything like that, but just to point out, it's like, we can't rely on the legal process to rebuild the labor movement because like these structures are set up this way on purpose. Like it's our, our, the whole labor system within our government, it's system of labor management is there to move class struggle away from more effective means. So like, even when you have good folks at the NLRB making good rulings like this, they can only operate within such a constrained set of parameters that ultimately like, we're going to need a lot more than just what is a very good ruling from the NLRB in order to rebuild and fight back against these illegal measures by companies. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the labor protections that we have now that we rely on the legal system to enforce, we didn't acquire in the first place through legal means, through bureaucratic methods. And so, you know, far be it from me to instruct our listeners to do illegal things to get an upper (laughs) hand in the labor market, but it worked once is all I'm saying. (laughs) That's right. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um, I guess moving to our next story, we are going to be covering a new union drive by uh, call center workers at a company called Maximus, who, uh, I guess, well, I guess I should rephrase this because what they've done is they've actually coordinated a strike, which was a a one-day strike on Tuesday, November 1st, where 400 workers uh, across the, the many different locations that the Maximus call centers exist uh, walked out demanding things like a $24 an hour minu- or a $24 an hour wage, uh, better health care, more breaks during the day. I mean, these workers are honestly really, really overexploited. They end up, they, they are mostly government contractors who do things like for the uh, Affordable Care Act and other sorts of things like that. And these workers have to deal with a lot of different things. In fact, we have a uh, a worker, uh, Sylvia Walker, who was who was interviewed and spoke on NPR and and she said uh, we wear so many hats on any given call there could be crisis we are a counselor we're a doctor we are the lawyers we are everything to these people and she mentioned that she only makes seventeen dollars an hour to deal with all of these things and has basically worked there for nearly a decade. And also, she added, I want to see a union before I leave this place. 
which I think is really a, a great sentiment from uh, you know a worker who wants something better for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's got to be downright insulting to be paid $17 an hour after two raises when it's your job to guide people through one of the most deliberately obtuse systems mm-hmm. ever implemented in the history of United States policy. And then on top of that, you have workers who are also saying that they're quite often facing racism from callers, but have no recourse and are punished if they complain about it. So Camille Wade, an eight-year veteran at the company, told NPR that sometimes when callers notice she's black, they immediately ask to speak to a manager, but workers are provided absolutely no way to deal with this. And she said, if we don't put up with the abuse, we get fired. So not only are they overworked and underpaid, they're being subjected to racism and I'm sure other forms of bigotry. And it's like, you know, this is a this is a real blow to somebody who is just trying to get by in the modern economy when the price of everything is skyrocketing. You know, by the day in some cases. Yeah, like, and this is a this is an area where because I think people have this idea of <clears throat> largely because of the way it's portrayed in the media of the idea that like call center work is, is I think honestly, I think the way that it's portrayed is really kind of gross because it's, I feel like it's one of those examples that gets trotted out there as the like lowest common denominator sort of job. That's just like, anyone can do this. This is just, this is a stupid job. It's just answering phones. And like that attitude about pretty much any job is already a problem. Cause I'm like, from the outside, I'm sure whatever this job is looks very easy, but I'm just like, I think if you talk to any of the people that actually have to do it and, but in also specifically in the case of these workers handling stuff like Medicare and the affordable care act, that shit is incredibly complicated and it's Mm -hmm. a complicated on purpose. Like the whole, as, as you were saying, John, like the whole system is set up to screw people out of getting the benefits that they're supposed to get and channel as much public money into the hands of companies like you know the various pharma and, mm-hmm. and insurance companies but also to federal contractors like these folks at maximus and so because this stuff is so complex there's so many issues involved and it's you know there's so much information that people have to input on this stuff like the calls that these workers take it, it's not like somebody calls in they're on the phone for two minutes they get one piece of information and they're off like these are calls that tend to take like half an hour each because of mm-hmm. how complicated these systems are and this is stuff again so that people can get access to the benefits that they are supposed to be getting but our bureaucratic you know anti-healthcare system that we have is like trying to keep them from getting it. So this is like really, really important work these folks are doing. And the fact that, you know, again, you have like these, like like the, the person you quoted, Sylvia Walker, who's, she's 68 years old and she's only making $17 an hour after working the company for a decade. Meanwhile, their executives, you know, are walking away with millions of dollars off half a billion dollars in, in federal subsidies last year. So like these workers deserve everything they're asking for and more. And it's really good to see that like the CWA has been supporting them, even though they don't actually have an officially recognized union yet. Mm-hmm. So like for the moment, like they're focusing on these like one day walkouts. And, and so the, like their walkout on November 1st was specifically timed because that was the, the beginning of the new open enrollment period for the ACA. So that's typically a very high throughput day. So they, they picked, you know, a very like a, a day with the most leverage that they could to do their strike. And <laughs> Unfortunately, Maximus's response to that was not, oh, wow, you know, we didn't realize how, how tough the conditions you were facing. We should listen to you and we should actually improve conditions. Instead, what they chose to do 
And by the way, this is a company that has been telling these workers that they take too many bathroom breaks, which <laughs> is oh. really messed up. But they, their response to the strike was to offer workers a $200 bonus if they cross the picket line. $200? You, you mm-hmm. mean I, I betray all my fellow workers and you <laughs> give me enough money to pay one bill? <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah, well, yeah. And then CWA followed up with a ULP filed against the company for this obvious bribe to do strike breaking. And so, I mean, I don't know. I, uh, last night I actually watched, uh, what was it? Sorry, we missed you. It's a fucking weird mm-hmm. movie, but like that is about call center work and stuff like that. Oh, wait. You know, sorry to bother you. Do you mean? Sorry, we yeah. missed you. No, no, I'm, you, you're pretty sure you mean uh, sorry to bother you. Sorry we missed you is the Ken Loach movie we just did the episode on. Sorry oh, to bother British. you. Yeah. Oh, it yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry to bother you. Yeah, they're, they're, they're named like the same thing. Yeah, so, yeah. sorry so to bother yeah. you. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, no, no, no. Sorry we missed you is actually not a fucking weird movie. No, so, <laughs> sorry to bother you is a fucking weird movie. Yeah, but, bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, but yeah, that, that uh, kind of... I think that some of the stuff in that movie was really highlighted as how like basically all of the call center workers were black, all of the people in management were white. It's mm-hmm. a it's a movie very much so about racism, but um but yeah, that just uh having like I just picked a movie out. I didn't even really I didn't really know exactly what it was about. I just knew that there were labor people who suggested it and then I watched it as like, "Oh, wow." And yeah, then I mean, to, to follow up and cover this story today, uh you know, just I don't know. Yeah. yeah, it's a great film, and also I love Terry Crews. Who doesn't love Terry Crews? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, like, but so you know, solidarity with these workers at Maximus. Mm-hmm. I think this is this is going to be a long term unionizing effort there because they're just it's kind of like just getting started over this year. Uh, so I, I mean, I it's one of those things where I think we're going to be seeing actions like this, you know, more and more building up slowly over time. But speaking of another CWA. Uh, related issue. We have uh, an update on the election efforts at Blizzard Albany this week, where we see yet another situation where the so-called neutrality agreement that CWA signed with Microsoft seeming to have uh, absolutely no effect whatsoever on Activision, despite Activision being in the process of being purchased by Microsoft. Uh, Because this week we saw Activision Blizzard file a motion with the NLRB to impound ballots that were recently cast at the elections at Blizzard Albany. There... So folks may remember we, we previously covered the successful union election at Raven Software, becoming the first unionized unit in any major game studio in the country earlier this year, which is really great. And then we previously mentioned how that enthusiasm, that drive spread to the testers at Blizzard Albany as well. Uh, and they have been working on their own election, which started voting on October 27th. But the company, of course... who does not want this election to go through is now filing a last minute series of legal appeals based on, you know, one of the very common like legal loopholes that companies use for this to basically say, Oh no, we we want our, our workers to have a choice, but the bargaining unit is wrong. We, we, we have to stop this election so we can have the just bargaining unit. Because we've decided that you can't just have an election with the QA testers. Uh, actually, we need all of the workers in the studio to have the election. And, and this is one of those cases where I think it's important to point out that we certainly would like 
all of the workers at Blizzard Albany to be in a wall-to-wall union, for Mm -hmm. sure. But, you know, CWA's tack here at both Raven and here at Blizzard Albany has been to go where the most, you know, militant workers and often the most exploited workers are. Mm -hmm. And because QA testers tend to get some of the lowest salaries, they tend to get hit with like really abusive hours. Those have been some of the groups of people most willing to unionize. And they do have a very different type of work than somebody who's a three artist or somebody who's a programmer. So they're like, they're doing very different things. So it makes sense that they could be considered a distinct bargaining unit, but Activision doesn't want that because it also makes it more likely that those workers will win. (laughs) Yeah, they would much rather have workers that they pamper much more heavily, not pamper, they would much rather have uh, workers who are much less unsatisfied with their jobs included in the bargaining unit because it's going to be much easier to inundate them with anti-union propaganda. Yeah, well, and these companies are always going to try to find some way to tamper with the the election and the bargaining unit, uh, you know, process is a really common way to do that is Mm -hmm. to say, oh, no, your bargaining unit is too big. You shouldn't include these exploited workers or, oh, your unit only concludes these uh, exploited workers. And so it needs to be everyone. And they will always do this sort of like, uh, you know, basically voter suppression tactic uh, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and manipulation tactic to get the upper hand, which to me, uh, has you know after all of the time that I've been covering these things, it's made me think that the company should literally not be allowed to do these complaints. The company yep. should not yeah. have any say in what a bargaining unit is. Like I honestly, I I almost hardly care if it's like three people who are like, hey, I we're we're forming a union. Like <laughs> I, I I maybe that's an exaggeration that doesn't quite fit, but like still. I, I just don't see any reason why the company should be able to dictate who is and is not organized. This is about union recognition on whether a union is real. Well, and it's it is like, real. The, much like everything else in the workplace, more or less, the workers themselves have the best idea about who should be included in the bargaining unit because they themselves are the workers putting together the bargaining unit and are the people with the reasons to organize, like it's all so plain and obvious. And it reminds me of a situation. uh, I think it was Starbucks or maybe Trader Joe's where they were like refused. They were so mad that some of the, the workers were coming in virtually. They were like, no, everybody needs to be here in person. And I remember thinking, well, it's like, whichever one they had done, the company would have just demanded the other one. And it's the same thing with the bargaining units where it's like, whoever you try to include in your bargaining unit for whatever reasons, the company will just come up with a different arrangement because they know that any other arrangement is probably less advantageous to you than the one you came up with. Well, and they often are are totally like rejected outright. I mean, mm-hmm. I actually cannot think of an example. I mean, I'm sure there are examples where the NLRB did say, oh, no, the company's right about this. But for the most part, that is almost always struck down and that these things are simply used as a delay tactic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's almost certainly the case here as well. Uh, like there's – we already – I mean, first off, we already have the precedent of – Ravensoft, where they tried this same strategy and it didn't work. So, like, there's no reason to expect this challenge to work. And so CWA put out a statement in response to this saying, quote, 
Instead of staying neutral, Activision's management continues to present the same failing arguments in a desperate attempt to interfere with workers' legal right to make their own decisions about forming a union and negotiating a collective bargaining agreement. It's clear the company's executives feel threatened by workers organizing in New York, Wisconsin, and across the country. We are confident in the NLRB's response to these frivolous requests, and we will continue to push for Activision Blizzard employees' right to organize without delay, end quote. And so, yeah, I mean... It, it it's unlikely that this will work. It's just, this is one of those things that is so continuously frustrating about the million different uh, legal tools that these companies have to delay and push off and like throw in doubt and, and suppress all these union votes. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, there is no corresponding way for the workers to, I guess, try and cook the books. Cause it's like, they're just trying to have a vote. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that that uh, this part of management shouldn't even be able to come into work anymore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just like what? What is? The, yeah, yeah. What is there even on the worker side of that? But uh, I mean, yes, I'm I'm so, pretty confident. I mean, and I think the workers are also pretty confident that they will win this election. Uh, that's going to be coming down on November 18th when the votes are ostensibly counted, assuming. Which is very likely that this objection will be thrown out. Now, as we are known to do on this show, (laughs) we cover things about labor, including forced labor and slavery. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. once again, we are going to, you know, expose of some sort. I mean, I guess obviously these reporters have really exposed it and we're just re-reporting it. But, uh, you know, the ways in which uh, slavery exists in our society So uh, on October 27th, the Justice Department announced that they are sentencing the three supervisors of a business called uh, Los Los Viatoros Harvesting LLC uh, to that there are sentences these three supervisors to three years in prison for trapping migrant workers from Mexico on farms in Florida and uh, and are going to be sentencing the owner, uh, Vladimir uh, Moreno, to up to 20 years in prison for what are very, like, these are just like, if you've heard us talk about slavery before, these conditions are not going to be surprising to you. No, it's very much the same story that we've seen with a lot of modern slavery stuff, including the kafala system, which we talked about before. Uh, so, you know, they promised these workers much higher wages than they're actually going to receive. And then upon arrival, they find them for recruitment fees. They also often find them for travel or expenses or equipment that they're going to need to work. And they put them in a mountain of debt. And then they make fake payroll documents, hiding the amount of money that they're actually giving them and pocketing the rest. So in this case, they did something that they, we've seen in a lot of other cases where they also confiscated the workers' passports. And when the workers got upset reasonably and demanded to be paid what they'd been promised, the supervisors and owner threatened them with deportation. And then the company also falsified visa records to hide the fact that they were keeping these workers in the country as forced labor way after their visas expired. So the workers couldn't even rely on the natural legal end term of their stay in the country as a way to get out of this and go back home. They were just straight up trapped. Yeah. And like the way this story ended up coming to light is pretty wild too, because the only reason like the the prosecutors were made aware of this is because two of the workers who were trapped in this situation actually escaped the farm that they were being held on by hiding in the trunk of a car 
Uh, and then after getting out, they contacted the labor group, the Coalition of Imakali Workers, uh, who folks may have heard of them from the uh, various boycotts of Taco Bell, specifically for purchasing uh uh, like tomatoes that are not grown in like fair trade style setups. Mm-hmm. So like the, and Wendy's. Oh yeah, Wendy's is the other big one. Yes. Um, yeah. So like this group has been doing a lot of support for agricultural workers throughout the country, but but like really centered in, in places like Florida. And so they worked with the DOJ to charge the bosses for these crimes. And so like there was a statement that was put out from the DOJ attorneys who were prosecuting this, saying. Quote, for their own personal enrichment, Christina Gomez and her co-defendants illegally conspired to victimize Mexican H-2A workers who came to the United States to participate in the harvest of fruits and vegetables. Their actions are unconscionable, using coercive, deceptive, and fraudulent practices to exploit individuals' immigration status to engage in a pattern of forced labor for financial gain is appalling, end quote. And so, like, that's a good statement, but I got to put a bunch of asterisks on it. Mm -hmm. First asterisk, talking about how uh, engaging in a pattern of forced labor for financial gain is appalling is objectively correct, but is a bit weird to hear for somebody from the DOJ, which is in charge of sending people to U.S. prisons that make workers engage in forced labor for financial gain literally every day. Um, the yeah. other things, though, about this case... It, like, it, well, look, it, it is kind of weird that the DOJ's take on this is like, you didn't even find them guilty of a crime first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. That is, that but, is what they're saying. Because, like, look, I, I'm glad that these like people have been caught and that they're being held accountable mm-hmm. for literally enslaving workers. That's very good, and I'm glad that these workers have gotten out. But... This that when this happened is a big part of why this is a problem. The case that's being charged in this, the 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 people that were being held in forced labor, this was all happening between 2015 and 2017. So this case took, you know, five years to go through the system and process. At, at, and while that's been going on, while the wheels of justice, so-called, have been turning. How many other stories have we talked about of basically this exact same thing happening all the time? Right. And only four people are actually seeing repercussions when it's very likely that the actual network of people who are, you know, facilitating this slave labor, uh, you know, trade and regime are, are, you know, a bit more vast than just four people. I mean, I'm just going to throw it out there. It takes more than four people to run a human trafficking and slavery ring. It just, (laughs) it does. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, though, that I just want to point out with this is that, like, as awful as the individuals involved with making this sort of slave ring happen are, and Mm -hmm. they are, and they deserve all the punishment that they get, like, it's our system of immigration laws. Yes. And our capitalist system combined with those things that makes this happen because Mm -hmm. it creates the incentive because every, like, what is going to be the number one cost that every agricultural firm is trying to drive down? Labor. That's why, you know, the, the, they import poor migrant workers because their, their goal is to pay as little as possible for labor. And there was actually a really good recent episode of Citations Needed that talked about this, the way that that gets used, you know, to amp up racism, to try and turn white workers against migrant workers and say, see, these people are driving your wages down, even though it's usually the same people taking advantage of those same migrant workers and in profiting off the system that exists to say those things. But all to get to that, 
this is often brought up as like, oh, it's a few bad apples abusing the immigration system. And it's like, this, none of this would happen if we didn't artificially and from purely racist reasons restrict immigration into the U.S. If we just said, if you want to come work in the U.S., you can come work in the U.S. and we're not going to treat you like, uh, you know, the an enemy people. of the state. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then this would not be a problem because those workers would have all the same other rights that all the other. I mean, granted, not that not nearly as many rights as workers should have, but the the what few that we have, the ability to go to you know a labor board and say, hey, I think I'm being exploited, which none of these workers have because they're all afraid now because of our incredibly draconian immigration system where, you know, you have people, you know, just being kidnapped out of their homes and deported mm -hmm. to places they may never have even lived. So, yeah. like, and we talk about things like the NLRA all the time. And I just want to remind everyone that when it comes to farm labor, farm workers are just not given these rights. They are mm -hmm. not extended to, to farm workers. Um, and also, you know, my, I mean, this it wasn't necessarily in this particular piece, but so often the news media is complicit in this in that they often call farmer, they call like these, you know, business owners farmers as if right. they're the ones doing the farming. Like, no, they are just, they're just profiteers off of the people who are the farmers, which are the workers who are out there in the fields doing the farming. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think ultimately, like, look, we're glad these people are being held accountable. I'm glad there's, you know, some some semblance of justice for these workers that have been have faced these horrific conditions. But if we actually want to end this, like, in addition to, of course, the long term goal of replacing the capitalist system that ultimately we're going to need to do to get any of these big problems fixed, even more specifically, it's like the reform we need to the immigration laws is literally just like stop criminalizing migrants. Yeah. Treat well, them the same as any other worker and all, and then just organize together. And that's more or less solves this problem. Well, it's the same logic as the one big union thing, right? It's like, if you get mm -hmm. everybody on the same playing field categorized the same way so exactly. that we're all employees, whether you're an immigrant worker, uh, a gig worker, a, a incarcerated person, a, an agricultural worker, a federal rail worker, whatever, all of those people are prevented from fighting for each other's rights by the insanely complicated, and Byzantine system that puts them in all of these different classifications like labor is some kind of deck building game for the bourgeoisie <laughs> instead of the way that most of the population spends most of their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. I, <laughs> I, I think that that's very well said. And I mean, to think of to, 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 to move to another version of segmented workers, I mean, mm -hmm. not in the same exact way, you know, we're not going to be talking about slavery here, but we're going to be talking about airline pilots, which are, you know, also not under the NLRA. They are under mm -hmm. the Railway Labor Act. Did you know that mm -hmm. that that uh, airplanes Ooh, are the same yes. as trains? They run on <laughs> rails. I've seen it. <laughs> yeah, this story was just, oh man, there you got. There's so much in here. You've got, you know. Uh, bosses going after workers. Mm. You've got sexism. You've got the abuse Ableism. of policy. Yeah, you've got ableism. You've got the abuse of policies that are ostensibly supposed to help people who need mental health resources instead to weaponize them against people. It's, it's a doozy. So uh, this is coming out of a report from the Seattle Times uh, covering a case, which this is also from a few years ago. Um, so 
In 2016, Carlene uh, Pettit, who is a 35-year veteran airline pilot for Delta, received a letter from the company saying that she was grounded because she was, quote, mentally unfit for duty. Now, of course, this came as a surprise to her, but uh, also an important detail of this, this all happened right after earlier that year when she had emailed her supervisors at Delta about problems with the way the company handled safety and was suggesting changes to the company programs to make flights safer. In response to her critiques, the vice president of flight operations at Delta told managers working below them to use a company regulation called Section 15 to label her as mentally unstable. We love open door policies, folks. We love it when you can just, you know, petition the managers and they hear you and you have that one-on-one relationship that's so glorious and and, and wonderful between the worker and the employer, right? Right? (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, like, especially when they just call you crazy for bringing up an issue with safety, because in an email, uh, the VP of flight operations wrote, if she cannot embrace and understand the reasons behind our actions, it stands to reason she might not be able to make appropriate decisions for the safe operation of a flight, which is, that is straight up one of the most demented things I've ever heard a, a manager or, or an executive say in my life. If you can't magically understand and agree with the mystifying reasons why we're treating you so fucking poorly then you're not fit to operate a plane that's to say that anyone with yeah say anyone who is discontent with their labor situation is purely like a curmudgeon and 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 a naysayer for no reason yeah well and like it's like an 18th century definition of hysteria being brought back that's what i yeah that's the that's exactly the first thing i started thinking about with this because there's so much history i mean especially you know if folks have listened to any of the stuff that that our friends at the death panel talk about all the time with the way that the the systems of you know psychology and psychiatry have been used uh, mm-hmm. against women in, in in the u.s uh like there have been so many different ways that basically any time that you'd have like a group of uh, of women, or even in this case, an individual just standing up and being like, uh, hey, I actually know more about this situation than you do, and I think we should make some changes. Yeah. And then they just like, this person must be mentally unwell. Right. And the company hired, uh, you know, a, a a person with presumably a second account in life, uh, you know, because <laughs> his name is da- uh, Dr. David Altman. I mean, Altman, come on. Just, yeah. like, <laughs> if I saw that on Facebook, I would definitely screenshot it and post it to my account and be like, which one of you motherfuckers is this? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the company paid him $74,000 to diagnose her with bipolar disorder to justify this diagnosis. He cited the fact that she had earned a doctorate and two master's dis- degrees, written multiple books, been a pilot on the longest, most difficult routes, all while raising three children, and then claimed that this was beyond what any woman I've ever met could do. Yeah, like, it it, it was shocking for me to... Like, it, I know people are that misogynistic, but to see somebody write that in a, like legal document for to to certify like a, a was supposedly a medical diagnosis in 2016 it's 
wild. She climbed Everest by herself and built a Sherman tank out of scrap metal from a junkyard. She must not be fit to fly a plane. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, yeah, because it's literally like, well, I couldn't do all that. So. I mean, all of those accomplishments just make me think you should listen to her more, honestly. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. and I mean, she is incredibly qualified in that she was able to kind of put a, together a defense for herself by going to a panel of doctors at the Mayo Clinic to evaluate her mental health, and they found no justification for the uh, Dr. Altman's diagnosis. Uh, there was a another doctor who wrote, uh, the evidence does not support presence of psychiatric diagnosis, but does support an organization slash corporate effort to remove this pilot from the roles. And, I mean, yeah. she has basically put together all of this evidence over these years and uh when she filed the whistleblower complaint and and all of this uh and then fought for years and years to get reinstated you know it turned out that in 2020 dr altman uh former dr altman right right (laughs) uh gave up his medical license after years of working as a stooge for corporations and uh basically faced tons of malpractice lawsuits um, and then the guy finally, is a Mike Judge character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. so, basically, Delta went out and found Doctor Nick from The Simpsons <laughs> Hello, to give them everybody. a fake diagnosis. Like, yeah, <laughs> and and also to attack the smartest employee, presumably <laughs> yeah. at the whole fucking company, which seems like a huge mistake. I don't know. <laughs> like, well, and. Finally, years and years later, uh, just this past month on October 21st, Delta lost its final legal appeal. An administrative law judge awarded uh, awarded her half a million dollars in compensation and ordered Delta to reinstate her. The judge said that the company was weaponizing the mental health evaluating process and presented no evidence that there was any problem with her flying. And... I think that this is kind of also ties in well with our last one that we covered in that this fight took six years. And then mm-hmm. not only that, I, I mean, additionally, she has multiple degrees. She has money. She's been able to put together that panel of, of doctors to evaluate her at Mayo. She has tons of resources to actually do this. And it still took six years. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You yeah. got to imagine how difficult it is for people who aren't in that sim- same situation, who maybe don't have access or never had access to higher education, don't have a whole lot of financial resources. And I mean, like, you know, I don't know how much a, a, a pilot makes, but I imagine that most people who are, are facing disciplinary issues with their employer don't make as much as a pilot. Yeah, I mean the first the, the first thing this made me think of was a comparison to the workers whose it like we've heard about the conditions faced at Amy's Kitchens mm-hmm. production facilities where they force workers who are injured from repetitive motion injuries to go to a company doctor who then just you know comes up with whatever the shortest term possible treatment is and then just denies the rest of like the their their issues and i'm because it's it's one of those things where like yeah like i'm really glad that she won this case it was like absolutely ridiculous a clear case of like anti-worker uh openly misogynistic uh, like ruling just absolutely ridiculous uh like i'm very glad that that she was able to get you know a bunch of money out of out of delta have all that stuff 
turned over. That's really good, but it, it all it also just makes me wonder. I'm like, how many more people have mm-hmm. been hit with this sort of stuff and not had the resources to fight back? Yeah, and I think that I mean, I I, I always like put my you know experiences out out there and try and try to you know connect that and like when i think about the time that i spent at starbucks and i was you know experiencing transphobia and misogyny constantly and i was fired which was you know a a uh, kind of a planned attack against me i was i had negative dollars i will never see justice for that situation the only yeah. justice I can possibly see is the victory of the Starbucks workers in their union efforts and and taking down Howard Schultz and his fucking company. Like that's the best I can hope for. And I mean the fact that she was able to get something out of this really shows, uh, for one, her own perseverance, but also you know a little bit of how many how much resources she had to even do this fight. Yeah, well, I yeah. mean every time I see a case like this, I'm reminded. Uh, maybe somewhat tangentially of the Stephen Jay Gould quote where he says, I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. I love that one. That's such a good quote. Um, so moving to our next story, we're going to do a couple of international stories now. Uh, one first, a, a little quick one here. We got some, some good news out of India where, Uh, After 11 days on strike, over 40,000 sanitation workers in India's state of Haryana have won their demands uh, against the state government. The the workers who are organized by the Center of India Trade Unions, the CITU, had originally planned to only hold a two-day strike. But when the government refused to, like, submit to their demands or even negotiate and actually attempted to sabotage the strike, the workers were like, all right, fine. (laughs) Screw you guys. We're going to stay out on strike until you actually listen to us. So uh, the sanitation workers in India, not just in Haryana, but all over the country, have been protesting against really awful conditions for years, uh, accusing the the state government, in this case of Haryana, of using the pandemic as an excuse not to address issues that had already existed for workers prior to the pandemic. So specifically the things that the workers were fighting for here was that they are all on a temporary contract basis. So they have no job security. They in most cases don't have full benefits. And so they're just like, look, we are full-time sanitation workers. We do this stuff every week, all the time. You, you can't just call us all contract workers forever. That's bullshit. Um, so they also uh, have been demanding accident insurance because this is, a again, this is one of those jobs. Like sanitation work is another one of those jobs that uh, is, is continually, like, treated really, really badly in mm-hmm. the way that it's portrayed. Like it's it's like oh this is just because it's all there's a, there's that cliche it's like oh well you know you better go to college you don't want to end up you know cleaning toilets or whatever as if like it's a awful job like and so I think people would be like oh sanitation workers accident insurance why do they need that like they're not like you know climbing telephone poles or cutting down trees or something but like the sanitation work can be extremely dangerous yeah. and we'll, we'll get into some of the numbers on that. Uh, later in this but so that was a big one but also they hadn't been provided safety equipment which like like you know things like gloves and coveralls and masks and stuff it's like if you're gonna be handling waste you have to have that stuff yeah well i mean even handling waste and then COVID on top of that Mm -hmm. you know it's like you need a lot of extra precautions and i don't know if these guys are like 
going down into the sewers or whatever, but sanitation infrastructure is often some of the least well-funded and most mm-hmm. poorly upkept infrastructure in any city or, or municipality. Yeah, so... The workers started the strike, again, planning to only be two days, but when the state failed to listen to them and was like, no, whatever, you have to go back to work, you had your little, your your strike, you blew off some steam, rather than being like, damn, this didn't work, they're like, all right, (laughs) screw you guys, and I love this quote from... The, the Gohana Sanitation Workers Union, this is from the vice president, uh, Sunita, who said, quote, the state authorities should provide equal wages for equal work and provide us with regular jobs, or we will start dumping garbage in front of houses. <laughs> 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 Just like absolute fantastic energy there. Like, <laughs> I, I love it because it's, 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 it's putting it right to the point where it's just like, look, if you want us to pick up your trash, fine, we'll do it. We took the job. Like, but... You got to pay us. You, you got to have it be a real job. If you don't, nobody's going to pick up the trash. And then you could see what happens. And in fact, we'll start putting the trash right in front of your house. And then <laughs> yeah. you have a response from the government where the state's chief minister uh, actually is like, hey, you need to end the strike for Diwali. Okay? Just fucking do it. And the workers were like, uh, no. Instead, we're going to hold our own thing called a black Diwali where we all wear black clothes and carry black flags to denounce uh, your exploitation of us. And then instead of picking up the trash, we're going to hold a major protest march to highlight our demands. And then it also, their protest and strike drew support from the state's firefighters as well as some other public workers. So it seems like, one, they know that they have the power here. And Mm -hmm. two, other workers are recognizing that they have the power here, which those are the ingredients you need to succeed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, these workers face really appalling conditions, especially uh, regarding the precarity and lack of safety. I mean, at least 17 sanitation workers have died in India in this year or this year alone. Mm -hmm. 350 have died since 2017. I mean, lack of safety equipment and insufficient safety protocols for sanitation workers uh, in enclosed spaces like septic tanks has put these workers in extremely dangerous uh, situations. Yeah. So, after 11 days on strike with garbage starting to pile up all over the cities, eventually the Haryana government just said, okay, all right, you got us. <laughs> Uncle, we give in. Please pick up the trash. <laughs> and so they agreed to all the workers' demands to pay back wages, to regularize their employment contracts, and to start providing safety equipment. So, like, I, this is just one of the the better, I think, like, textbook examples of, like, this is how you do an effective strike. I like I think it's an, an incredibly good example just generally for people to look at. Well, and I think that uh, sanitation work is historically exploited around the world. I mm-hmm. mean, we've been covering it since what? Episode 2 where we covered uh, you know, the the ones where the the workers were going out and holding the I'm a man uh, signs. I mean, you can see it on our episode two artwork. I mean, mm-hmm. this, this, <laughs> this has been a long time that we've been talking about the conditions of, of sanitation workers and not just, you know, in the United States, but abroad. And them being ha- or them having the leverage of trash piling up is a big deal. Was it was it the young lords also who had done some organizing around sanitation? I don't know. That's a different I, I, I don't want to. So. Yeah, I, th- I think it was that case i don't want to draw on a history that well, i'm not, it, um, uh, recently uh, versed in wasn't martin luther king 
killed on his way yeah. to go organize that, with sanitation workers. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the strike that, that Lena was talking about. Yeah, the, yeah. Those I am a man uh yeah, signs yeah. are from the, the Memphis sanitation right. workers. Right, but right, right. The, the strike that I'm talking about is actually from like a couple years ago where it was actually oh, workers okay. calling back to that strike. Oh right, right, right. Okay, right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I mean, is there so, is there a, a group of workers who are more exploited considering how absolutely essential they are to the functioning of society? I mean, the only contender I can even think of is teachers. Yeah, teachers was going to be that was going to be nurses. Like, yeah. Yeah. Up I, there too. I, I, I don't know. Well, let's not let's not do com- like yeah. Let's not rank them like still, this. Like, That's silly. It, there's yeah, but, there's well, a few that are really really easy to highlight. You know, like yeah. speaking of incredibly vital workers who society could not function without and Mm -hmm. yet do not get anywhere near the respect they deserve. We're going to go to our biggest single story of the week, uh, which is the attempt by the government of Ontario to force a contract onto school support workers that almost prompted a general strike in the province. And I just want to throw a shout out here to a friend of the show, Ambrose, who uh, helped me put this story together. Our, 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 the show's Canadian correspondent uh, assisting with this. Cause it's very much not an area of, of expertise for me. So, um, so what this story is, is ultimately about if folks, you know, our American listeners haven't been following this. Uh, so, there have been ongoing negotiations for months and months and months between the government of the province of Ontario, which is run by the conservative government of Doug Ford, uh, and the Canadian Union of Public Employees, who represent about 55,000 school support staff. So that's everything from like education assistants, library workers, janitors. It's, it's most of the workers at a school who are not directly themselves teachers. Mm-hmm. And, and so they've been bargaining for months with the province trying to get a new contract and have not been able to reach a deal. Uh, like uh, one of the big... like points of contention has been on on cost where the the Ford administration has offered at one point one and a half percent raises and I think they went up to two percent incredibly low raises considering that the inflation in Canada has exceeded seven percent mm-hmm. so again these this would be a functionally a pay cut and however what prompted this big situation is that rather than just you know, drag these these negotiations out or just start doing a media campaign complaining about the teachers like we see all the time the the ford administration decided to use this as an opportunity to basically go nuclear against the rights of workers in canada so they put together a bill that they rammed through the, the provincial legislature last week called the keeping students in class act and the bill would essentially do what Congress has talked about doing in the rail strike. If they try to force the rail strike, like to not happen by ruling it illegal and trying to force the PEB recommendations on workers. Mm -hmm. This would, this is basically similarly trying to do that where this bill would force the union to accept a new four year contract that only would provide workers an average raise of 2%. And, this is after the workers had been asking for a 11% raise, which I know 11% might seem like, whoa, wow, that's a, that's a really big number there. And, and sure, it's bigger than we see in a lot of contracts, but this is for workers who are only being paid an average salary right now of $39,000, which 
Like that's just simply not enough money. So in an 11% raise would still only bring that up to $43,000. So again, this is not like workers are asking to double their salaries or anything. Mm-hmm. Although frankly, when they're only start like averaging 39,000, I don't even think that would be a particularly out of line request. But the, the thing that is so vicious about this bill and why it raised so much ire is not only did they attempt to force through this contract, the, the bill would ban strikes by uh, the Canadian Union of, of Public Employees, uh, CUPE, and the penalty for continuing to strike against the, the contract would be fines for the union of half a million dollars a day and $4,000 per day for each individual member who went on strike. Fuck like, off. because Arrest again, me. this is. 55,000 workers. If implemented, that bill would result in $220 million in fines against the union per day. Yeah, and I mean, uh, additionally, the another part of this bill will actually also just, like, subvert the human rights policies of things. I mean, actually, uh, so there's a special clause in the, in the Canadian constitution that called a notwithstanding clause, which allows you to basically pass laws and say, Oh no, ignore this other section. And so in this bill, there is this line that says this act applies despite the human rights code. (laughs) Yeah. It's literally just not exaggeration. Well, we have a bill of rights, but just ignore it. (laughs) I hate that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm an American living in America, podcasting from America, so I think I'm within my rights to say it. Uh, Canadian public employees, you need to break Canadian law if they pass, <laughs> if they enact this. Well, and they kind of threaten that too. But I mean, there is. A, we have a quote from uh, Mark Hancock, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the president of CUP, that told the Toronto Star. Basically, they know that this is a violation of the Constitution. This is a violation of our human and labor rights. They don't care, and they are going to squirm this through come hell or high water. This is an amazing, brutal approach by Premier Ford and his government. Yeah. Like... The, so this this has been an, an exercise in learning about Canadian constitutional law for me, because, like, the fact that they... They have this clause in their constitution that allows provinces to write bills that evade basically the restrictions of of Canada's Charter of Rights. The idea being that, you know, I I guess theoretically this was supposed to function a bit the same way that like the 10th Amendment in the U.S. does, where it's basically supposed to be like, well, we need to make sure that the provinces have their own level of self-government. But what that's functionally allowed them to do is that while Canada has a more robust legal definition of the right to strike than the U.S. does, because, of course, the U.S. right to strike is only within a very narrow uh, set of prescribed limits from mm-hmm. the NLRA or if you are you know, an airline pilot or a rail worker, the, the NRA. But in Canada, it's been ruled you know, by their Supreme Court that, that, that workers have a constitutional right to strike. So in order to write a bill like this, they literally had to put in an exception that says, yeah, so we're passing this bill even though we know it's illegal and unconstitutional, but we'll use this special legal trickaroo to get around that problem. A trickaroo? How Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, this is a, and, and, and this is one of those things where, like, you know, of course, if there was this sort of clause in, like, you know, the U.S. Constitution that just said, uh, "By the way, you can you can ignore these amendments 
if you, if you just write that into your law, that would have been used to make strikes illegal entirely, you know, decades ago. But this is actually an unprecedented use of it in Canada's history. It's never been used like this before in Ontario. So uh, there was a previous attempt to ban strikes via legislation, though not using the notwithstanding clause, under a liberal government, uh, I believe like a a decade or two ago. Uh, That failed massively in Canada's courts and ended up with a requirement where the government was forced to pay $210 million to the unions for their attempt to uh, let make strikes illegal. So, like, this is a pretty much an, uh, an unprecedented level of attack on labor rights in Canada. And so, like, to the point where labor lawyer Paul Cavaluzzo told the Toronto Star that the legislation was, quote, shocking because what we have now is draconian anti-democratic legislation, which is imposing a contract without the employees having the right to arbitrate. The Ford government has absolutely no respect for the rule of law. They're almost making Ontario into a charter-free zone while they govern, end quote. But the the good part of this story, because, of course, you know, all that is like, oh, this is incredibly bad. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the provincial government of Ontario, you know, one of the, one of the he- more populous provinces in Canada, is attempting to basically make labor rights illegal. But thankfully... The Canadian labor movement has responded to this pretty much exactly as we would have hoped, where they, even some of the more conservative unions in Canada immediately were like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you, you can't, you can't do this. Uh, so, like, because QP who represent over 200,000 public workers total in Ontario, including the 55,000 support, school support staff, basically said, okay, fine. You want to pass this ridiculous law? Bet. We'll strike anyway. <laughs> so, despite, again, like there was this whole week where the Ontario's like, nope, nope, this is illegal. We're going to fine you all these millions and millions of dollars. And you're just like, fine, do it. <laughs> do it, you won't, basically. Like, yeah. Because, and so <laughs> they, they went on strike on Friday, uh, it, despite the threat of legal action from the government. The Ford government immediately tried to sue the union based on the act and invoke the ridiculous fines. But it's also critically not just been the 55,000 workers of CUPE. There have been all sorts of other unions across Canada, even some that have been like uh, basically the, the equivalent of our, our like building trades unions, which are often pretty conservative and have, have directly supported the Ford administration in Ontario before have made a complete about face because of this and just said, hey, if you can attack the public workers union with this sort of legislation, you could use this against any of us. So we cannot allow this bill to be passed. And and so like it got to the point where, uh, you know, there started to be discussions of an actual provincial wide general strike where like QP Ontario president Fred Hahn said in a speech on Tuesday in Toronto on November 1st, quote, I think it's absolutely a possibility in a way I hadn't imagined before. Many of us talk about the idea of a general strike as though it were a fantasy land, a lovely dream. But I do think that people see what is at stake. And if a government isn't going to allow for any democratic process or any democratic debate, if they're just going to create legislation that is such a ridiculous hammer to hang over the heads of people and continue to cut services, this is the beginning of much resistance to many of the components that this government has here, end quote. Hell yeah. I mean, that's really fucking incredible. And then, you know, to see uh, from Press Progress reporting on Thursday, November 3rd, that seven unions that previously endorsed Ford's government have since condemned the bill and vowed to support the strike by QP workers, including the IBEW, IUPAT, which is a painter's union, the pipe fitters and the Construction Trades Council. 
is just incredible. Like I can just imagine uh, some Canadian uh, news anchor being like, "Today in the news, uh, notorious shithead uh, <laughs> Doug Ford does the worst thing ever and accidentally ignites uh, a national labor movement like we've never <laughs> seen." <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because that's the thing. It's like it's not as if you know uh, there aren't this similar divisions within the Canadian labor movement as we've seen you know here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. There's obviously a, a breadth of political consciousness and different tactics and different levels of class collaboration in, in U.S. unions. And I'm, the same thing appears to be the case in, in Canada. But but the immediate response from hundreds of thousands of workers in Canada, I think, has been really inspiring. Like, there was a massive rally held in Toronto on Saturday to bring together thousands and thousands of union members and supporters across the province in defiance of the anti-strike law. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of unions pledging their support for QP, uh, I- including the 8,000 members of the Ontario Public Service Employees Union who pledged to join QP on strike, and the 2,200 members of ATU, the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 1587 in Toronto, who pledged to shut down the bus system in Toronto, which is shut down today because they've also been in the midst of a contract negotiation. So when this happened, they're just like, all right, fine. Sounds like a perfect time to strike. (laughs) So, and then even like the giant 135,000 member QP branch in Quebec, who are members of the 600,000 member FTQ, uh, they have announced their support for the strike as well and vowed to join the protests in Toronto. And there's even gotten to the point where like the, the, BC Teachers Union out in British Columbia donated a million dollars to QP over the weekend in support for them. So all of this came to a head today, as folks may be aware, we record on Mondays. So this has all been an emergent issue. And so after all of this, you have hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of union workers coming together over the past week to be like, look, if we got to do a general strike in in Ontario to, to get rid of this stuff, Fine, let's do it. Let's shut down the whole province. And so this morning, Doug Ford held a uh, had a press conference, and they announced, "Well, okay, maybe maybe we we don't have to actually have this bill. <laughs> uh, maybe 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 we'll repeal the bill. <laughs> please please don't have a general strike." <laughs> Yeah, well, then, then, but, like, the way that he put it together is like, uh, if you promise not to strike, then we'll repeal the bill. Yeah, so the the issue is not 100% resolved yet. There is a, a agreement in place now where the conservatives in Ontario have agreed to withdraw the bill, but it has to come at the same time with CUPE ending their strike and returning to the bargaining table. So essentially, returning to the position that everyone was at before they stirred all this shit up by passing this ridiculous uh, anti-democratic, anti-worker law. So the whole incident's not over because this is the thing. Like, there's no reason whatsoever for the workers to have any level of trust in this government at all. Like, I, I could absolutely see them just, you know, going to the negotiating table, dragging their heels for a month or two, and then doing the same thing again when they think they've gotten the level of militancy in the workers to die down. So it, the, it, still a dangerous period where like QP's really got to be like monitoring what the government's doing and keeping, keeping workers engaged, most important, to be like, look, we may have to go back right into a strike position, you know, like at the drop of a hat, but... I think this is a really incredibly inspiring like show of force from mm-hmm. the Canadian labor movement. Like, frankly, the speed at which they got to the point where they're just like, 
yeah, I get maybe we should have a general strike. And this isn't just, you know, people on the internet being like, okay, November 5th, we're going to have a general strike. Everybody do it. Like this is no, like this again. is organizations with hundreds of thousands and millions of members being like, yeah, you know what? I guess we do need to organize a strike. Let's, let's actually start doing the organization work to do that. And just that effort, just the threat of a general strike from these sorts of folks was enough for the, the this incredibly right-wing government to be like, all right, maybe we went a little too far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that, that, again, we always talk about this when we hear about the idea of a general strike, is you don't just declare a general strike. You have to actually organize, you have to create coalitions, you have to look at the different ways in which general strikes have come into fruition throughout history and, and use a lot of those tactics to even get anywhere close to being successful in that regard. So Yeah, so... So solidarity with the workers in Canada. Yeah. So uh, we'll be following up on this most likely next week, but, you know, also as more news comes out in the future. But in other things that we consistently follow up on, we're going to move to our Starbucks segment. Yeah. So uh, we've got yet another lawsuit against Starbucks to just add to the gigantic towering portfolio of them that's coming together uh, on their illegal campaign against their workers. So on Tuesday, November 1st, the NLRB issued yet another big complaint against Starbucks, this time for uh, closing the College Ave store in Ithaca, New York. Longtime listeners of the show will remember we talked about that one a lot because that's the store that had prompted workers to organize after the management refused to fix a broken grease trap that then resulted in uh, literal maggots spilling out onto the floor. Uh, and then rather than fixing that, which would be a relatively simple thing to do because the workers had organized, uh, they just put it on the list of all of the union stores, uh, I believe about a dozen so far, that the company has closed with, you know, various fake justifications. Mm-hmm. So like similar uh, to the like, Chipotle uh, yes. situation, I mean, yes. the ruling by the NLRB does say that the company is being forced to reopen the location, pay back wages, rehire the five fired employees. And just like in the Chipotle case, Starbucks is going to bring it to court. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is the same thing where it's like, uh, this is a good complaint from the NLRB. Although I do think that, uh, you know, as always, I'm like, you know, you could just say you have to reopen the store. Also, you have to turn over management to the workers. But, you know, right. (laughs) Also, you could do it in less than five months time. Yes, that's that's the big thing, is that the Ithaca store was closed, as you're saying, five months ago, and it's taken this long just to get a complaint out there, and the complaint's just the first step. Uh, so, you know, as you're saying, like, Starbucks is going to appeal. This will have to go to an administrative law judge, potentially before the whole board itself, so it'll be a while before this case gets resolved. And in the meantime, workers have had to transfer to other jobs, and, of course, the real goal of doing this by Starbucks, thousands of Starbucks workers across the country have been intimidated about unionizing, because, you know, if you see this happen, you see folks successfully unionize their store, then Starbucks illegally closes the store and gets no punishment for it except one complaint five months later that maybe in a year they might have to reopen the store. Yeah. And then also, I mean, speaking of legality and complaints, uh, there is another, uh, there's this really weird case in uh, Trumbull, Connecticut, 
where yeah. the local government has had this issue where there's this line at a uh, basically like a drive through Starbucks and the line ends up getting so long that it goes into traffic and people are like, oh, this is a problem. And so they did what any good American legislature would do and issue a very strongly worded letter telling the workers that they need to work harder. Uh, as if... Whose fucking responsibility is the traffic around the building? It's not a barista's job. I just, this one is completely baffling to me. Like in what universe are a bunch of college students who are just trying to have a good job at Starbucks responsible for traffic backup onto your local road when there's a multi-billion dollar international company that could very easily hire a construction crew to come in and make the drive through do some little dog legs or a switchback or something. <laughs> yeah, it, this is, frankly, honestly, this is like one of the most Connecticut stories I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> As somebody who used to live in Connecticut, this is very fitting with the culture of many uh, town governments. Uh, this, because again, yeah, it's like w- passing a resolution asking the workers to work faster to clear up the traffic. Like, yeah, it's sh- the the level of it's like tell me that you have never experienced working class life without telling me. <laughs> like, yeah, like come on. Yeah, well, and I mean, another thing that was proposed, I mean, they could just take down the drive-through. They sure. could, I mean, like, the, they even pointed out that while the line was out in the street, there were two people in line inside the store. Yeah. Like, oh, I, I also just did a quick Google search. The median listing home price in Trumbell, Connecticut is half a million dollars. Yeah. So, uh-huh. yeah. No, not surprised. Yeah. So that one was ridiculous, but uh, we also had this week the strike at the New York City Roastery continued uh, as Starbucks continues to refuse to fix the unsafe and unsanitary conditions at the store. And they received some support on the picket line from the Teamsters, who are the ones who, of course, often are the supplying stores because they're the delivery drivers. Mm -hmm. But... Because the Teamsters are a generally a relatively militant union, they in their contracts almost always have a provision that says, hey, by the way, uh, we're not crossing any picket lines. And so since the workers at the New York City Roastery have been on strike and the Teamsters are the ones who deliver to the store, they got there this week and were like, oh, well, we're not delivering anything to them. And they were like, came out and like took pictures with all the, the Starbucks workers on the picket line. It was really good uh, to see that level of solidarity because that's the sort of stuff, you know, like we talked about the inspiring stuff going on in Canada. And this is obviously, you know, a much smaller scale, mm-hmm. but it's like that's how you you build those cross union forms of solidarity that ultimately act as like a force multiplier to make these sorts of direct actions that much more effective. Absolutely. And then another thought of almost almost cross union solidarity. We've got a yeah. very interesting store. Uh, where Starbucks have uh, Starbucks workers have been organizing in a combination Starbucks Amazon Go Pizza Hut Taco Bell look no not pizza. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a Starbucks Amazon Go location uh, on the ground floor of the New York Times building oh, uh, where the workers have filed for an election uh, per the reporting of the. Oh, uh, per the reporting of the city, New York City, uh, the the store is staffed entirely by Starbucks workers, but basically have to go and work two jobs because they stock the shelves for Amazon and run Starbucks at the same time, Mm -hmm. where one worker anonymously told the city, which is a publication, just to be clear, 
Uh, we're overworked and underpaid. We're doing multiple different jobs at the same time, or we're doing multiple different jobs for the same amount of wages as any other Starbucks worker. And that's nonsense. I mean, the workers have already faced retaliation with uh, management illegally using the dress code to uh, it basically force workers to not wear union shirts, even underneath their aprons. I mean, this is... We've gone over the different violations of Starbucks before, <laughs> yeah. but they are not backing down on their bullshit. I mean, that's a, yeah. here's my thing. If you're asking an employee to do two distinct jobs, you need to pay them two separate living wages. $25 Correct. an hour twice. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, cause, and that's one of the things that I think is really insidious about these Amazon Go stores mm-hmm. is they're presented as if there's no labor involved. Right. They're, as if the product simply up here on the shelves or that there's some sort of Bezos bot that does the stocking like for you. It's like, no, it's like any other store workers stock the shelves, Mm -hmm. but this illusion of automation only further helps like justify these sorts of like hyper exploitation where you've got workers, as you're saying, like doing all of the work of Starbucks workers, which is already a, a, a understaffed, like overly difficult job. And then adding all this other stuff on top of it for no extra pay. It's ridiculous. So really glad to see these workers organizing. It reminds me of workers at at, uh, the rest stops on the Ohio Turnpike, where I've seen Mm. the same worker in working in the Sparrow, the Aubon Payne, the Burger King, the Starbucks, and cleaning the lobby. And it's like, pay that man $150 an hour right now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, And so, of course, all of this comes down to the fact that, you know, we still have, despite all the union busting, despite all the law breaking, we still have more and more stores voting to join the union movement. Mm -hmm. So this past Monday on Halloween, workers in Scottsboro, Alabama, became the second unionized store in that state, despite multiple illegal retaliatory firings at the store and a seemingly endless series of legal delays in their election. And workers also won at the Broad and Spring Garden Starbucks in Philly, becoming the seventh store to unionize in that city and bringing our total to 259 unionized Starbucks across the country. That's what I'm talking about. Quarter of the way to a thousand. That's right. (laughs) Nice. Well, um, speaking of a quarter of the way to a thousand, how about the meme review? That's not actually a very good segue. I like it, though. Uh, the first one we have uh, appears to be... Is this an edit of a Teleser meme, or did Teleser straight post well, this? I think no, it, this, we were supposed to almost read bottom to top on this one. Okay, okay. Well, well it's... So the, the background image is one that Telesaur made, okay. and somebody superimposed this... Because... so. People may have seen this PragerU tweet that was going around last week, which was very funny. It was basically the uh, uh, the exemplar of the sort of thing you might see in a Facebook group like uh, right-wingers accidentally proposing communist ideas. Right. Uh, so you've got the tweet, which was from PragerU saying, end climate change seems to always translate to end capitalism. <laughs> and so, of course, there's a million people that have retweeted it like, yes. <laughs> and, but it's superimposed over a like picture of Che Guevara that Telesaur had put together with a famous quote of Che's saying, quote, it's not my fault if reality is Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I actually did uh, look at the replies on that to be like, oh, is this like going to be a bunch of shills? No, no. People are like, yes, no, we do need to end capitalism. So <laughs> I thought that that was pretty funny. And then our second one is a uh, Pulp Fiction image. Yep. Mm-hmm. Ah, I got it. Uh, yep. Never seen the movie. Don't want to watch it. Um, Royale with cheese. Yeah, the, the top <laughs> caption of this is... Uh, Buying food in 2022, be like, and then uh, it's Samuel L. Jackson, and he's holding a yellow mug, and he's got blood on his shirt and all that, and he says, this is some serious class war shit. And, uh, it's true. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Everything is so expensive. Shopping at Aldi <laughs> is like shopping at Meyer used to be, price-wise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Meyer being like our our regional like semi like big a, box store like a, almost like a Walmart but it's like, like a the, Kroger like a tar- Target with, almost yeah it's like a Kroger that's trying to be a Target or a giant Eagle that has a clothing section it's a weird ass store I, but, I always get confused when I see that written out because I'm always like major major yeah like, <laughs> no it's <laughs> it's Dutch the J makes a U sound. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then one of my favorites this past week is uh, <laughs> is the it's got just got a top caption and then there's a bunch of photos below and it says everyone AI art will make designers obsolete and then the thing is AI accepting the job and it's <laughs> images of AI generated hands shaking and there's like. <laughs> 25 fingers on the hands there's like hands with connected to wrists with hands on the other side shaking other hands i (laughs) yeah i i like the one i think it's like if you look at these sequentially it would be like the fourth one of these where the ai basically generated a wrench but it's made out of flesh and the two ends are both hands yeah what what if cat dog (laughs) instead of being a cat and a dog was two, two hands. hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The bottom right one being this really like almost broken arm, like sh- handshake. They're fucking, they're almost grotesque. I actually should say that they're, they're basically oh, like, you know. Yeah. It's like, I have seen horror. plenty of people talking like that. They're just good. They're just like, oh, yeah. All these, these like hoity toity woke artists are doomed now that AI can do their job. And I'm just like, eh, have you seen AI art? Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't understand yeah. perspective at all. Uh, <laughs> speaking of getting some perspective, our next meme is just a illustration of Blackbeard, uh, presumably outdoing pirate stuff as one does. And it says, Blackbeard says, never feel bad for organizing your workplace. They organized against you first, which it's true. is really true. And also cool to hear from a pirate who, at least for <laughs> their time historically, had a pretty progressive system of workplace organization. Yeah, and if that uh, show is to be believed, he's also gay. Yeah, which is always a plus. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> now, uh, but I, I like this one a lot show, because... I've heard it's good. It's so good. Yeah, I, I like this one a lot because I think that people sometimes forget, or not maybe not listeners to the show, but a lot of people who think about union organizing are like, Ah, uh, well, you know, I mean, things aren't that bad here, you know, this or that. And I just want to remind people, they did organize against you first. The reason why there is the contradiction between you and the, the owning class is because they organized against you. 
Yeah, when, well, and like when they registered that company with the state, that's when they organized against you, right there. <laughs> when they established their human relations department. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's when it really crystallized. You know, that's when yeah. it became identifiable. <laughs> and that's honestly, Dan, that's even that's nicer than what it's actually called because it's called human resources. Oh yeah, no, that's right. It is human. Oh uh, yeah, because human relations is is, is different. <laughs> yeah, no, that would it would be almost nice. That would be like, uh, you know. Oh, what is what is the human relation between you know all of the workers? But no, no, it's no. just what what are the human resources that we're exploiting? It's because yeah. I did a mashup of HR and PR. Yeah, human resources you can read as you are a human and as such a resource. Get back to work. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get out of and my then- office. I just, uh, as I've been trying to do, I've been adding slightly cutesy ones at the end here. And uh, <laughs> this is just a, a photo of two capybaras looking at each other in nice little warm coats and being presented a pumpkin pie, which is such a cute little image. I just love it. It's they just, look like it's they, they just got back from Duluth Trading Company. With the, <laughs> yes. The, the, the fur, or like the wool lined. Uh, vest thing. jacket thing yeah, they're yeah. wearing yeah yeah and then the the caption on this one is this is the future the left wants and the answer is yes that's true, that's true. we want capybaras who are very friendly and cute looking and uh being offered wonderful holiday treats and also very stylish yeah it's true <laughs> okay i pull up hop out at the after part no you guys don't know the capybara meme all right look it up look, look go to youtube and, and type in okay i pull up you'll be happy uh, <laughs> okay. all right and with that we're gonna wrap for this episode i want to thank everyone who supports the show and we could not do this without you we're entirely listener supported so if you'd like to contribute to the show and you know help us stay going you can go to patreon.com slash work stoppage and give us five dollars a month and then that gives you access to all of our overtime episodes our interviews our movie times all sorts of really cool content you also can get stickers which if you have uh, not gotten your stickers go ahead and message us on the patreon to get those um and you know write us a review somewhere follow john at facebook villain follow the pod at work stoppage pod all of the other links are at uh workstoppagepod.com listen to beep beep lettuce listen to red game table and as always labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever solidarity solidarity everybody (laughs) 